Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Mark Ferguson. Professor Ferguson was Chief Scientific Advisor to the Government of Ireland and Director General of Science Foundation Ireland until the start of 2022. He currently chairs the board of the European Innovation Council and he's been active in developing both science for policy and policy for science activities in Ireland and across Europe. He was a founding fellow of the UK Academy of Medical Sciences and is a commander of the British Empire. His research background is in biology, having made major contributions to our understanding of how wounds heal and scar, how cleft palate develops, and alligator and crocodile biology, starting, curiously enough, with a degree in dentistry from Queen's University, Belfast. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, so help me out here. I can see how you get from dentistry to cleft palate, but how do you get from cleft palate to alligators? And while we're at it, if it's not too dangerous a question. How do you get from alligators to uh, science advice? Well, the alligator and crocodile story is quite simple. Alligators and crocodiles are the only animals that have a roof of their mouth, a palate uh, like a human, and they develop in an egg. Uh, So at that time, which was in the 1970s and 1980s, um, I used alligators as an experimental model for cleft palate. You could do little experiments by accessing uh, the egg. And then as part of that, uh, I became an alligator and crocodile biologist. So, for example, I discovered that if you incubate alligator eggs at 30 degrees centigrade, you get 100% females. And if you incubate them at 33 degrees centigrade, you get 100% males. And in between, you get different sex ratios. So that's the phenomenon of temperature-dependent sex determination. It's now been described in more than 800 species of reptiles, and it's actually a form of epigenetic programming. The temperature of egg incubation determines the sex, determines the adult growth rate, the physiology, and so on. So uh, part of me became an alligator biologist. And then I always joke by saying, you know, a training in alligator biology, um, moving through swamps, being eaten alive by mosquitoes (laughs) and uh, catching dangerous animals like alligators and crocodiles is a great training for working in the public service. Oh, yes. I heard that punchline going a mile off. Thank you for that. So uh, temperature dependent sex determination, meaning what, that they incubate their eggs at different temperatures to like balance the population of males and females. How does it work? Well, the animals select a nest temperature for themselves. The animals aren't that smart. They're cold-blooded animals. Uh, And so the temperature in the nest varies between the top and the bottom. There are 30 to 40 eggs in each nest. It varies across the season. Uh, But one of the advantages of temperature-dependent sex determination is that there is a permanently skewed sex ratio in the adult population of about uh, four male, four females for every male. So this is a very efficient uh, breeding uh, population. Males control uh, big brat harems of breeding females. And interestingly, no species of crocodile or alligator has gone extinct since man began classifying animals. And one of the reasons for that is you can rebound very quickly from a catastrophe, whether um, a man-made or not, by the skewed sex ratio and very rapid expansion of the population. So, so that's one of the things that temperature-dependent adult physiology, including sex determination, does. Yeah, you do sometimes hear people describe crocodiles and alligators as living dinosaurs. Yeah, living dinosaurs, but they're also animals that, being cold-blooded, select uh, things for themselves. And they're uh, largely unchanged, you know, over 300 million years of evolution. If you saw a crocodile from the Triassic, it looks like a crocodile of today. It's just, you know, a lot bigger, but it actually looks like that animal. And one of the things that temperature-dependent sex determination does is it allows the animal to adapt to the uh, environment more rapidly than you would with genetics. Um, So they can scale up and down their metabolic rate, their uh, preferred uh, thermoregulatory temperature, their growth, their sex, and so on. So so it's actually an interesting adaptive mechanism. Well, it's fascinating. And there are many things we could have chosen to discuss today, uh, which overlap with your expertise, even, I suppose, within the fairly narrow confines of the topic of this podcast, which sadly I think does exclude crocodile sex. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but your proposal, which I think is an interesting one, is, is to talk about the history of science advice and one specific character from that history. So listeners will already have seen the title of this episode, so they'll at least be expecting to hear about Solly Zuckerman. But perhaps like me, they might not know much more than that about him. So who exactly is or was Solly Zuckerman? 
So Solly Zuckerman is a very, very interesting person. And um, I no had known about him for uh, many years. And actually, he wrote uh, an autobiography. It comes as two books, uh, two volumes, each of which are about 500 pages. Uh, the first book is called From Apes to Warlords, 1904 to 1946. And the second is called Monkeys, Men and Missiles, 1946 to 1988. So a little bit about background for Zuckerman. He was essentially the first chief scientific advisor in the UK. I mean, he was arguably the first chief scientific advisor in the world. He was obviously, during the war, a contemporary of Vannevar Bush in the United States, who obviously was responsible for, you know, Science the Endless Frontier and this foundation of the National Science Foundation. But uh, for Zuckerman himself, he was born in South Africa and he came to the UK basically to finish his clinical medical studies. So he got his medical degree from University College London. And then he went on uh, to be a anatomy dissector at the Zoological Society of London, spent a little bit of time in the United States and then came back to a lectureship in anatomy at the University of Oxford and subsequently became professor of anatomy uh, at the University of Birmingham. So he was medical, biological, scientist, anatomist by background, and scientifically studied the social life of monkeys, hence the reference in the title in the book, wrote a book actually on the social life of monkeys. But during the war, he became very interested in uh, bombing, uh, both how you bomb more effectively and also how you protect against uh, bombing uh, that was happening. And he became the chief scientific advisor to uh, Mountbatten, who was the commander-in-chief of Allied forces, and then uh, to Tedder, who was the chief of the air staff. And he had a really phenomenal role during the war in terms of devising uh, bombing campaigns. And then he went on uh, to have a very distinguished uh, career within government, uh, being involved in nuclear disarmament. In fact, the, the first uh, uh, signs about the environment and farming, uh, very, very wide influence across government as a chief scientific advisor. And I can paraphrase this very well in his obituary, um, one of the obituary writers wrote, Lord Zuckerman's entry in Who's Who was four times longer than the average, which meant he had four times more fun. And I think that's a pretty good uh, uh, example. But that's a sort of potted history of who he was, an extremely interesting person. And I had, I had known about this, and actually I had bought the book. Um, his books came out in the 1980s, and I had bought the book then, but I didn't read either of his books until I retired. So one of the reasons I want to talk about this is since I retired in January, I've read his two volumes, and they're absolutely fascinating. I mean, they're basically, it's storytelling of somebody who was at the front line. But within that, you can see how all of the facets of scientific advice uh, within government that are as relevant today uh, as in his day. So it's not a textbook about science policy or science advice. It's, it's basically stories um, and fascinating. Yeah. So you can tell from the dates of the books that you just mentioned that uh, he was working at a very interesting time for science, yeah. not just the war, but also the post-war period, which you sometimes hear people refer to as the, the first golden era of science and, and policy. Yeah. And I guess if Zuckerman was a trailblazer, he was influential in shaping that. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the war stuff is interesting and also the post-war stuff. And, and what I really uh, came to appreciate was uh, the significant influence of the war and then the Cold War and nuclear arms race and so on on science policy. And this kind of comes through very clearly in his autobiography. OK, well, I mean, perhaps you can give us a rundown of what you think is most interesting about Soli Zuckerman. But the first question that springs to mind is, that if he was Britain's first chief scientific advisor, how did he get that job like? And also, how was the post created in the first place? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think the first and most interesting thing is Mountbatten. So Mountbatten was the uh, commander-in-chief, and he brought three civilians into a very top position uh, for military planning, much against the uh, wishes or indeed the reception of the military planners at the time who thought that military things were only military men. Uh, and the three people he brought in were Zuckerman, 
who was this biologist stroke medical background. Uh, then he also brought in Bernal, who was a, a, a renowned crystallographer, an Irishman, uh, a very distinguished crystallographer. And again, a guy called Jeffrey Pike. And Pike was not a scientist. In fact, Zuckerman describes him as a man of vivid and uncontrollable imagination and a totally uninhibited tongue. So he was <laughs> what one would probably call, you know, some kind of crank or lone inventor or something today. And the reason for this was that Mountbatten was very skeptical of people who thought along conventional lines. So he believed that if you brought in scientists, even if they were uh, from diverse backgrounds, that they had a different uh, perspective, it would make the military planners uh, sit up and take note. And Zuckerman pays a lot of tribute to Mountbatten. He basically says that he had an open mind, unlike most people who had, you know, preconceived ideas of what things uh, should be like. So, so that was the sort of uh, the beginning. And, and well, can I ask if these people were, uh, to what extent they were from the scientific establishment? I mean, it sounds like Zuckerman to an extent was, but Pike certainly not. No, Pike was not from the scientific establishment at all. I mean, today, if you were doing an analogy, you would be looking at, you know, a distinguished uh, professor or scientist or researcher from different domains. But you'd also probably be looking for an entrepreneur or, you know, one of these uh, people who would be coding or writing script or, you know, inventing a business. For a bit. So, so that was who Pike was. He was a, had this uncontrollable imagination, but, but actually had no background in science whatsoever. And the idea was to get diverse views. And what you also have to remember is that these were not the only scientists advising within government at the time. I mean, there were clearly scientists within the military establishment. And then Churchill himself had uh, Viscount Churwell. Uh, Viscount Churwell was, was actually Frederick Lindemann, who was a professor of physics at the University of Oxford and probably was Churchill's closest friend. And he was uh, referred almost by everybody as the prof. And he was, by all accounts uh, from history, a very brilliant person, but also an extremely arrogant and opinionated uh, individual and not a great assessor of technology. I mean, uh, the so-called prof actually did not want uh, Britain to invest in radar. He thought it didn't work and that they should be using infrared beams instead. He dismissed uh, the V weapons, the, the V bomb and so on that had been described by Germans. And he was a strong believer in uh, eugenetics um, and all stuff that would be really not palatable in today's uh, world. But he was a great tennis player. He played tennis with Churchill's wife and, and Churchill was, was his great friend. Uh, so you have these very interesting forces. You know, you just don't have one person. Uh, you know, you have Mountbatten with his advisors. You obviously have the Americans uh, with their advisors. You have Churchill with his advisors. Okay, so in all that, what made Zuckerman stand out? What was his contribution? The real thing that Zuckerman did during the war was to show the value of operational research. So essentially, he applied the scientific method to the war situation because most of the things were based on preconceptions. You know, people had an idea that if you bombed uh, uh, factories that you could stop, you know, production of, of machines or aircraft, that if you bombed cities, you might depress uh, the population, et cetera, et cetera. But these were preconceived ideas and people didn't measure anything. I mean, one of the great controversies and, and interesting things in the book is that the chiefs of staff of the Air Force, and including Bomber Harris, who, who invented the bouncing bomb, basically significantly underestimated the accuracy of their uh, bombing fleets. So they said how accurately they could bomb, but they never measured it. And actually, Zuckerman kept saying that their estimates were uh, inaccurate in the sense that the people flying the bombing planes and doing the bombing were more accurate than the planners credited them for. And this became quite important because uh, they said they couldn't do certain missions because they weren't accurate enough, but actually they were. It's almost the reverse of what you would expect. People tend to overclaim and say they're more accurate. So there was a lot of this in the background. And basically, one of the things that uh, Zuckerman did was he had this operational research. So he did experiments. He you know, measured the destructive capacity of various bombs. And one of the intuitive things is that the military thought that, you know, a bigger bomb, an aircraft at that time, could only carry a certain weight of bomb. And if you had a big bomb, it did more destruction. But actually, Zuckerman showed that weight for weight, 
multiple small bombs did more destruction than a big bomb because of this radius of destruction. So he did these experiments, um, and these were experiments both about how to protect the population from bombing the civilian population in the UK, but also how to bomb more effectively. But the great controversy in the war, and, and one that occupies several chapters in his first book, was that he advocated bombing the railway communication systems. Um, he basically showed that if you could disrupt uh, supply chains, movement of men, machinery, supplies through the rail network, which was the predominant way at that time, then you had a very major crippling effect. So he was the architect, essentially, of bombing the French railway system before the landings uh, of, of D-Day, without which those landings would have failed because it inhibited, at that time, the German forces from bringing reinforcements months and so on to, to the line uh, to attack. But this was widely contested. So Mountbatten and Tedder, who was the head of the Air Force, and Zuckerman uh, were advocating this. But Churchill and the Prof and various others were advocating the bombing of German cities. And their uh, philosophy was that uh, if you bombed German cities enough, the population of Germany, would, the civilians, would become so depressed that they would actually surrender, they would give up. There was no evidence for this at all. I mean, it was just a preconceived idea. It was very strongly held. And then they did what uh, Zuckerman described as, you know, cherry-picking the evidence or putting it through the sieve um, because they went and asked people how did they feel after their city was bombed. Well, almost nobody says they feel happier after their city was bombed than, you know, before. So, But this doesn't mean they're going to be depressed and give up. And it's actually quite interesting that that strategy of trying to bomb a civilian population into submission has never worked. It didn't work during the war, either for the British or the Germans. It didn't work in Vietnam for the Americans. It's probably not going to work in Ukraine uh, with the Russians. So there was these very interesting tensions, and you can even read in the book, you know, how he came up against Churchill and some of these uh, meetings and some of the other things and the way that people made snide comments or tried to undo the evidence in, in various ways. But but he was a real pioneer of operational research, i.e. Of, of going out and measuring, applying the scientific method. And he called his studies the natural history of destruction. So a bit like biology, you know, you do experiments and then you go and test whether those experiments have any meaning in the real world. And, and then you kind of modify what you're going to do depending on, on that. Um, really fascinating uh, insight into applying the scientific method to what is essentially a very large scale and, and largely uncontrollable, you know, multiple different variables uh, situation. Yeah. Wow. So we had this newfangled evidence-based research about what works being pitched against the established wisdom that you mentioned, like the strongly held preconceived ideas which have been around forever. Yeah. So then how come Zuckerman won the argument? I mean, how did he persuade the establishment and people like Churchill? Well, I think there were there were two really important things. The first was that he had the strong backing of Air Marshal Tedder, who was in charge of the Air Force, and at Mountbatten. But Tedder's very interesting, you see. So, so Tedder went and checked Zuckerman's uh, assumptions. So you read in the book, they did these surveys, for example, after of the effect of, of British bombing on France uh, and, and so on. So, so Zuckerman was right in there, you know, at the immediate, uh, at the front with the first invasion. He was out with a team of people measuring, you know, with the accuracy of where the bombs were, had landed uh, and comparing that with where they were supposed to be, what the destruction was, looking at the railway charts to see it, at the movement of of railways and so on. And, and from that, he then wrote reports uh, uh, essentially suggesting what to do next based on the evidence uh, uh, which, which he distilled from, from experiments and then from being on the ground. So he was physically on the ground. He wasn't an armchair warrior. I mean, he was out there at, at the kind of front line. Uh, and Tedder went and checked that. 
So when he wrote the reports and he made these suggestions, which sort of went against uh, what was the, the, the policy at the time, Terror went, you can read these accounts, if he went in a jeep with them and looked to see the craters and talked to the people and the French. And he became convinced. He became absolutely convinced, as did Mountbatten, because they had open minds. They were prepared to look at something which had, you know, good a priori reasoning that had some experimental data and then had some measurements on the ground. And that was kind of key. Yes, it was about persuading allies, people in high places. Yep. Uh, in one of the books, one of the chapters, uh, Zuckerman sums up uh, some of the things that he learned uh, during the war and that he applied to civilian life and also things he learned from Tedder. And, and he has this wonderful quotation which goes along the lines that he learned that something that is blindingly obvious uh, to a scientist is not necessarily obvious to other people and often has to be argued with great conviction. In the world of politics, you often have to operate as if something that is clearly black can be described as white. Um, and and so he, he talks about how, you know, you can see how he's gone through these various situations of very powerful people in extremely important circumstances, you know, where, where decisions have to be made very quickly. Hmm. Another thing that crossed my mind as you described what Zuckerman was doing, he was not a science advisor really in the modern sense, right? He wasn't distilling the consensus and synthesizing and presenting it. No. He was more an experimenter, like a researcher. He was originating the scientific results on the ground right there and then. Correct. He was applying science. He was applying the scientific method. Uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting was his use of probability. So basically what he did was, and I think there's a lot of lessons for that for today, he took the big picture, he said, okay, let's assume that the accuracy of the bombing is this, put it into a probability equation, and then from that, uh, deduce that with, you know, 80% or 90% probability of success, you have to drop 400 bombs over this particular area. So it was, it was a probability calculation. Now, if you think about that, I mean... Did we do those calculations at the big picture uh, in the COVID crisis? So, for example, did anybody say, well, actually, the probability of a COVID uh, self-diagnostic test working in terms of somebody self-isolating is X. I mean, we tended to get into the minutia of how accurate was the test and would people really self-isolate and would they be able to interpret the result and could they fake the result and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that all matters in terms of educating and increasing the probability. But at a population level, what matters is uh, what is the probability of this working? And then you add on to that, what's the probability of, of, you know, if you do a lockdown of shops or restaurants or businesses, what's the probability of preventing the spread? And then you layer into that, you know, probabilities of treatment or vaccination. So he did these probability calculations and, and from that, and then tested the hypothesis that, you know, went out. Uh, and uh, and saw on the ground whether or not uh, that uh, those calculations had actually been correct. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, even in current uh, situations, we don't really apply the scientific method. We synthesize the evidence, and you might recommend, as I described in the COVID situation, but I don't think anybody sat down and did a, I certainly didn't, uh, didn't do a probability calculation, you know, of saying, well, actually, if you take all of these factors in, this is the thing we need to do to prevent this. Then you check to see whether that's the case or not. And, and then you alter the variables accordingly. So I thought that was really quite interesting. I mean, yeah, he was actually doing operational research himself and, you know, supervising a very large number of other people. But he also really understood, I mean, he was in the throes of all of the discussions within government about policy and the military planners, but he was also at the front line and knew what the, what the bombers were doing and what the troops were doing on the lines and so on. I think that sense of realism is very, very important. He, he's quite critical of what he called desk warriors. I mean, uh, in the book, he said he was fed up reading the pontifications of eminent scientists of how many pounds of explosive were needed to move a square yard forward on the front line or, or you know, how many people were transported. There were no resemblance to uh, reality. He needed to be grounded in reality and, and not a desk warrior. All right. But so in terms of his role, I mean, the limits of his mandate were kind of blurry on both sides, as it were. 
On one side, he was closely involved in the political debate, persuading people, advocating his own positions, you know, one of a small number of strong personalities and strong opinions. Yeah. And at the same time, on the other side, he was also the researcher. He was the one doing the frontline research on which he was then advising. So, I mean, this does not sound like the gold standard modern understanding of an independent science advisor. Definitely not. Mildly. Indeed. So he was quite critical of independence in, in many different ways. Um, and, and this comes through the book. So, I mean, we can talk about it in two or three ways. The first one was um, after the war, there were various uh, inquiries to see what was good and what was not good and what would you do again and so on, as there typically are after anything. And he was very, very scathing of the fact that these inquiries had to be independent because he said, how could you run an inquiry properly if you didn't have people who knew what was going on and knew what was doing? And he likened this to, for example, saying, this is not how science operates. You know, when Watson and Crick and so on uh, described DNA, it wasn't independently validated by somebody who had never worked on DNA or RNA before uh, and who was brought in from the outside, you know, to see whether or not the structure was correct. In fact, it was validated by the scientific community, all of whom had preconceived ideas. Some of them would be supportive, some of them completely opposite of what they thought. They thought, you know, maybe it was not a triple helical structure, maybe it was a double helix or, or something else. But actually, the way that the science works is that the validation is actually done by the people who are there, which include people with lots of preconceived ideas. Science is actually about preconceived ideas, but it's then about testing those preconceived ideas and, and seeing which of them are correct and which of them are, are incorrect and which of them need to be changed. So, so he was quite critical of this uh, idea of, um, of that, and he thought some of those people... Um, uh, talk nonsense. And, and one example of that during the war was when there was a, um, a huge debate going on about whether to bomb uh, cities or whether to bomb the railway networks. At one point, Churchill asked the uh, Supreme Judge of the court of the of England to decide. And Zuckerman thought that was absurd because this was somebody who was clearly independent. He was a lawyer. He had no idea about military planning. He had no idea about operations. He had no idea about, about so on. And he thought this was completely absurd. Yeah, so he wasn't just asked to contribute the legal perspective or the ethical perspective. He was asked to actually no. make the decision. Correct. Oof. Or give a recommendation. He didn't make the decision, but they give a recommendation. So that was one thing. And then I think, you know, skipping forward, because this topic of independence comes up again. And after the war, and Zuckerman was very highly regarded for what he had done, uh, he went on to become eventually the chief scientific advisor. Actually, the course of that history is quite interesting. He became the scientific advisor to the Ministry of Defence after the war. The Ministry of Defence uh, spent more than 50% of the UK GDP after the war. So, so in most countries, a big chunk of the country's expenditure was on nuclear weapons and defence systems and so on. So very, very important position. Then he was involved in nuclear disarmament. I'll talk about that in a second. And then in the course of the nuclear disarmament, Harold Wilson wanted to make him a government minister. And he wanted to make him the minister in charge of discussing nuclear disarmament. And Zuckerman refused. He did not want to become a minister. And after two or three refusals and a lot of pressure from people to do this, uh, Harold Wilson, who was then prime minister, conceded and said that if he couldn't be the minister, then he couldn't just be advising the minister in the Department of Defense. He needed to advise the whole of government. And he created the position of government chief scientific advisor. So that's actually how the position got created. Not by some logical people saying we needed all this uh, scientific advice. But through the stubbornness of this chap. Well, the stubbornness that he refused to become a minister because he wasn't elected. He didn't want to be a minister. He wanted to continue to be a professor in Birmingham. Um, uh, but he also felt that that wasn't his role. His role was to give this kind of advice. But on independence, I mean, what becomes interesting there is that uh, Zuckerman was asked then by uh, the government to come up with a plan for what scientific advice across the UK government would look like. And he did come up with such a plan, and he actually called it the Scientific Secretariat. 
not advice. And the reason for this, uh, you know, succinctly stated was he said each government department should have a chief scientific advisor who was simultaneously in charge of advice, policy and the budget. So he didn't advise anything about uh, independent views. He said the scientific person at the top of this structure should be controlling science advice, policy and the budget. And the reason for this was to try and get over this disjoint between implementation and advice and funding, you know, which is, which is kind of a problem. Now, that was rejected by the government, okay? The government did not do that. So you have to ask the question, why was that? And in the post-war era, uh, this was the nuclear era, the Cold War, many of the eminent scientists, Patrick Blackett, who was an eminent physicist, Oppenheimer in the United States, were against nuclear proliferation. I mean, their view was that there should be nuclear disarmament. You should openly share the secrets of the nuclear technology. Everybody should be in an equal footing. There shouldn't be an arms race. There shouldn't be mutual self-destruction and all the rest of it. And this was totally against the Cold War politics of the day. It's not what the Americans wanted. It's not what the British government wanted. It's not what the people wanted. So the government created the idea of independence. It wasn't the scientists. They rejected uh, Zuckerman's report for scientific advice. They didn't want these scientists in charge because they would be doing something that they didn't really want. And so they said, no, we're going to have scientific advice at arm's length from the government, independent, not the people who are there, basically so that we can ignore it. So it's very interesting how this concept of independence has sort of almost mutated 180 degrees with history. You know, it was invented by government as a way of dismissing or, or ignoring the scientific advice. And now it's kind of seen as the cornerstone of, of the system because it's independent and therefore not tarnished and is massively cherished by the scientific establishment, but not necessarily by the government. It's sort of gone 180 degrees when you think about it. Yeah, although I mean, that's, that's true, right? We, we praise independence now because it reduces the chance of politics infecting science, right? Absolutely. But we also kind of celebrate, or well, at least that's, maybe that's the wrong word, but we fully endorse the, the consequence that science advice is allowed to and often can have little or no impact on policy. Because we say, look, this shows that, that political decisions are for the policymakers to make. They have the democratic mandate. The scientists give their advice from arm's length, exactly as you describe, and then they shouldn't be the ones who make the decisions we say. They certainly shouldn't hold the budget. Absolutely. And I mean, and, and to some extent, Zuckerman exposed that and supported that as well. For example, he had this doctrine of free speech within government. So, you know, that you would be free to say what you wanted to say within the situation. But, you know, I can give you a good example uh, to illustrate what you've just said about, you know, the importance of um, scientific advice not necessarily being where the decision is made. And this was in the post, uh, post-war post era. Uh, so, so at the time, uh, this was in the 1960s, um, there was a comprehensive test ban treaty being negotiated. So, so they were trying to stop the explosion of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. And these had these discussions largely between the Russians and the Americans and the British had been going on for two years to try and ban atmospheric testing. They kind of got nowhere. They got very bogged down. Zuckerman was involved with them. And then the Russians broke away and they did an atmospheric test. So the Americans decided to respond. And the then U.S. president, who was John F. Kennedy, basically requested the then British prime minister, who was Harold Macmillan, for Christmas Island in the Pacific. So Christmas Island was an island in the Pacific. It was part of the British Empire, part of the British colonies. And what the American uh, president requested of the British prime minister was that he would clear all of the people out of that island where they lived. They would never, ever return. And he would give the Americans uh, the island, essentially, for a test nuclear explosion. So uh, Macmillan asked Zuckerman as the chief scientific advisor for his view on that. And Zuckerman's report is actually quite interesting. So he starts out in this report by asking many of the eminent nuclear scientists of the day. So that was, you know, Patrick Blackett in the UK, Oppenheimer in the US and so on. He asked them how many nuclear bombs of the type that were in existence in 1960s would it take to completely destroy the British Isles, to destroy Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Ireland? 
the consensus was four, and the main outlier, the maximum number was nine, okay? At the time, the Russians were thought to have 1,500 of these bombs, and the Americans about 2,000 of these bombs. So Zuckerman said, actually, what are we trying to do here? Like, if you doubled the performance of the nuclear bomb, you would only require two bombs as opposed to four. Like, does it really matter when you've got 2,000? What's the point of this uh, atmospheric test? And it's very interesting, actually, in the propaganda uh, from the Russians uh, in the Ukraine war, they said that two nuclear bombs would uh, destroy the whole of the British Isles. So if that's true, and it's not propaganda, and I don't know whether either is true, then since 1960 to up to the present time, we've kind of gone from four to two to destroy all of that. Anyway, I'm on a sidetrack. So the first thing was, uh, you know, what's the point? Then the second thing was, Zuckerman argued, don't learn anything from an atmospheric test that you can't learn from underground testing. And then this was countered by an almost uh, infectious paranoia from the scientists, particularly within the military, that the Russians had learned something unexpected from an atmospheric test. So the entire scientific uh, establishment, basically were, uh, in the military sense, were paranoid that they'd learned something, uh, uh, even though it was highly unlikely that they hadn't, and that it was probably just some kind of you know, political uh, statement. So Zuckerman um, advised very, very strongly that uh, Macmillan did not agree to John F. Kennedy's request to give Christmas Island for an atmospheric test, that it be turned down, that it didn't have scientific validity. And then I'm going to read a little bit from the book now because I think it's really, really interesting. And I'll quote now from the book, and it says, there had been a long-standing agreement that the two leaders would meet in Bermuda towards the end of December 1961. And it had become obvious that the use of Christmas Island would be the main item on the agenda. Harold Watkinson, that was the uh, chief secretary, had advised the prime minister to be wary of the American request. So had I. One day I was asked to go over to number 10, 10 Downing Street, the UK prime minister's residence, for a word with him. It was midday and we were alone in the cabinet office. You don't know why I've called you over, do you? He began. I've been rereading all these minutes of yours about Christmas Island, and I want you to know that I agree completely with you. Yet there are reasons which make it impossible for me to say no to the US president. But I also know that I shall live to regret what I have to do. Zuckerman goes on, the other reasons were, of course, obvious in many fields of politics. The UK were more dependent on the Americans uh, than the Americans were on the UK. And he says, all I could add to what I had already said was that it seemed to me that the Russians had resumed atmospheric tests mainly for political reasons. Since they were clearly not worrying about world opinion, there was every reason to suppose that were the Americans to reply in kind, then as soon as the projected series of American atmospheric tests had been completed, the Russians would start another. I was disheartened when I left him, but at the same time pleased that I had heard from his own lips and in so graceful a way that basically we were of the same mind. When one's advice has to be rejected, it's always nice to know why. To that end, Harold Macmillan always had style. So I think that was really, you know, interesting about your point that there was the advice, but they were overriding things in a very serious situation. Like, you know, you're giving uh, essentially uh, an island to somebody to be destroyed. Mm. Very good. Then... I want to ask you to take a, a general view and think about either one or both of the following. One, what about Zuckerman's legacy? What's still in place now, maybe institutionally or more conceptually, that, that Zuckerman created or inspired? And secondly, what can we as modern science advisors and science advice practitioners learn from Zuckerman's stories? I would say that a, a couple of things, you know, one thing that I personally always think about is if you want to find out about somebody, it's always a good idea to either ask that person's secretary or a um, more senior person's uh, secretary. <laughs> because if you think about it, you know, the secretary to a very important person like the prime minister or a minister or whatever, I mean, they interact with a lot of important people. And so they will tell you whether people are arrogant, you know, how they treat them, whether they treat them in a demeaning way or whether they're friendly. They can tell you actually quite a lot about the person. So I tried to find out whether or not uh, any prime minister, what any prime minister's secretary had thought about Solly Zuckerman. Unfortunately, um, uh, one prime minister's secretary actually wrote a book 
this is uh, unusual, a lady called Marcia Williams, who was Harold Wilson's personal and political secretary for many years, she wrote a book called Life at Number 10. And I looked in that book to see if she made any mention of Solly Zuckerman, and she does. And she writes as follows, whenever there was a crisis where scientific advice was required, the first name to be heard was that of Solly Zuckerman. It almost sounded like a court of law. You felt at any minute some flunky would open the cabinet room door and shout down the long corridor of Downing Street, call for Solly Zuckerman. Yet, at the end of the incident, whatever it might be and whether it was successful or not, very curiously, Solly Zuckerman never seemed to have been involved. <laughs> so I thought that was really quite interesting. I mean, she obviously thought about that skeptically, but I think that's sort of like the the cornerstone of scientific, you know, you give the advice and somebody else makes a decision and you're not out there saying you did the right thing or the wrong thing or whatever. You're just kind of providing the, the information. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But another thing that I thought was interesting was that Zuckerman clearly valued his own opinion. And he valued giving that opinion personally, even if it wasn't part of the consensus. And I think there is a bit of a role for that as well. I mean, I thought there's a really, really interesting uh, part in the book where uh, military procurement after the war was very important. And people in, engaged in these large projects that were often cancelled after billions had been spent on them. So this was a sort of tension within the system. And one of those was about the procurement of aircraft. And Zuckerman, I'll, I'll give you a quote from the book, and he says, I made no secret of my skepticism about the UK's need for the F-111, which was a fighter jet. One day, Henry Hardiman, who was the permanent secretary, came to my room with a copy of a minute I'd just sent Healy, who was the defence minister, and indignantly asked how I could disavow policies in whose formulation my own staff was playing a critical role. My answer was that I had not joined the ministry to subcontract my own judgment. So that's something you probably don't see today. You know, there's a kind of consensus view, and there was a consensus view from the staff and so on. And he then said, that may be a consensus view, but I disagree. This is what I think. It's kind of interesting. Definitely. I wonder how that would be viewed by modern day scientific advisors and policymakers. I think it would be valued if it was presented uh, appropriately as it has been in this case because that was his judgment and you know Zuckerman was quite and he was quite thoughtful about this I mean he said think about it the number of creative scientists are actually quite low most scientists are you know hewers of wood and carriers of water you know they make incremental advances and so on but there are some very creative people who make major uh, uh, changes, and you need to embrace that idea. So you, you do need to have the consensus, but you also need to embrace the kind of creative, uh, bright individuals. And he was very uh, dismissive of consensus scientific reports that stated the obvious and thought because they stated the obvious that they would be implemented, and they basically had no idea of the kind of rough and tumble of, of politics, of the fact that you had to be trusted by people that needed to know something about the corridors of power and how they operated and so on. Just making a bland statement of the obvious doesn't necessarily make it to be translated. So I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be advocating something different, but I think we need a little bit of balance in the system. You do need to have some consensus reports. You do need to have a view for the mainstream. You probably need to have some outlier views. I, I think it's very interesting, you know, that Mountbatten chose what would be described in today's world as a nutcase <laughs> and two very diverse uh, people just to challenge the kind of system and make people think differently. And I, I think there's a little bit of that that's required. And then at the end of the day, something I really admire is the kind of crystal transparency. It's almost like freedom of speech within government, the sort of trust thing. And, and you're saying, this is my view. This is the consensus view. This is the view of somebody else. Here's some empirical evidence. And, and I think that's true in today's world. It's, it's true, particularly when you get into crises uh, like war or, or like the COVID crisis, you know, where decisions need to be made very quickly. Um, and actually, the evidence isn't there. I mean, in most cases, the evidence is emerging as you're trying to make the decisions. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more thing. I want to ask you what your moral assessment of Zuckerman is. 
He worked, as you said, on bombing campaigns. And it, it sounds like not just protecting people from bombs, but also on making bombing more effective. And then he went on to work on nuclear policy and development and disarmament, you said. So I guess there are two views here, which you generally hear bandied about. One is a scientist's role is to kind of do as they're told. Of course, they can choose what areas to research and invest their own life in. But it's for the government to decide what the policy objective of the day should be. And then the scientist is kind of pointed at that and asked to support it. So you can imagine, for instance, a scientist with their own uh, negative views about the war, nonetheless contributing their work to support the waging of that war. And then the other view is that scientists have a responsibility, either because of their specific roles as scientists or perhaps just by dint of being moral agents, as we all are, to stand up for their convictions and not just blindly follow orders. So listening to your account of Zuckerman, I'm not sure where he would stand on that issue or how he thought of his own uh, sense of duty. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He actually discusses this, um, uh, and he discusses this in the context of nuclear uh, uh, weapons. So, for example, um, he believed that there was no such thing as a tactical nuclear uh, missile. So the military have essentially small nuclear bombs uh, that they think they can use tactically. And he argued very strongly that uh, any deployment of nuclear weapons would lead to full-scale nuclear escalation and total annihilation. There was no such thing as a tactical nuclear attack. So a lot of his thinking around this was uh, was essentially governed by uh, by nuclear weapons and uh, and the Cold War. And what he asked was, if there was an outbreak of war now, so this is in his case the 19. 19- 70s, 1980s, okay? If there was an outbreak now, would every scientist in the world boycott the war? Would they all say, actually, wars uh, don't do any good, they are of no value whatsoever, and we, the scientific establishment, believe that you should resolve these political differences in a way other than war? And his conclusion was that the probability of that happening was close to zero that the most likely thing was that there would be scientists who would engage with various factions in the war. So, you know, if there were two or three countries fighting, that they would engage in those, that they would try and uh, develop ways of defending or or, uh, attacking the others so that they could win. And there would be a cohort of scientists who would distance themselves and say they want nothing to do with it, as they did, in fact, in, in every war. So he believed very strongly that the idea... Of, uh, of science being able to control politics, which is essentially what you're saying. I mean, wars are called, caused by political differences, um, was almost impossible. And that, in fact, what had to happen was that scientists needed to, uh, and others, not just scientists, and others, needed to influence politics to try and prevent the wars from happening in the first place. Um, so the kind of moral compass is an interesting one, and I think that's a very interesting test uh, that, that, that Zuckerman talks about in, in his book. And he makes no apology for the fact that he was responsible for, on the one hand, uh, helping people uh, survive bombing, in the case uh, of the UK, but also of more effectively destroying the enemy because it was a war and, and that's what he was there to do. So... I think it's a it's a very interesting discussion, but you know, if you're in the middle of the war, I guess if you went and asked any Ukrainian at the present time, you know, uh, that question, you would get a very different answer than if you asked, for example, somebody in Ireland. I think if you're in the midst of one of those things, and you know, your country and your livelihood and what you believe in is being destroyed, uh, people think rather differently. So I do not uh, judge Zuckerman on that. I'm actually quite full of admiration. When you read this book, you realize that the person was clearly a polymath. He was clearly very bright. Uh, He was capable of working in circles, not just 
government circles, but military circles. I mean, he talks in, in the book how war makes military leaders into prima donnas. Um, and you can kind of translate that into various other forms of life as well. You know, where simple men who, who given a, a lot of command and control suddenly lose the run of themselves and, you know, decide that they know better than anybody else and, and uh, have these preconceived ideas that trump everything and won't be persuaded even by something that is blindingly obvious. But for me, the thing that really shines through is kind of the application of the scientific principle of, you know, gathering the evidence, doing experiments, validating uh, what your policy uh, that you've implemented is, adapting that, being able to say, actually, cut this wrong, it wasn't right, you know, we need to do this now, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's actually quite an interesting uh, situation. And, and what he also describes, I mean, he's quite supportive of biological sciences for science advice, because he argues that if you're um, a scientist who's involved in great precision, very controlled conditions, as in you know uh, certain physics experiments or or mathematics or whatever. That's not the way the world works. The world is much more complicated. It's much more dirty. And actually, it's much more like biology. So he kind of argues that biologists are well, or zoologists or medical people who use to this kind of complicated world where, you know, patients don't take advice and every tumor doesn't look the same and all the rest of it. That's much more like, he also argues that scientists are very well placed to be leaders during war because they're absolutely trained to respond quickly to the unexpected. So, you know, you do a scientific experiment, you get a result you don't expect, and then you move on. This is different from a kind of ritualistic training that says the way we run this military campaign is like this. And, you know, we just keep doing it until we win. If you were a physical scientist, you might take issues with some of his uh, kind of characterization of people who are involved in very great precision, not being able to deal with the rough and tumble of politics and the real world and so on. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Huh. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I'm really happy that you found the time not only to read these books, but also clearly to digest them and think about their meaning and their relevance to the ongoing issues which we talk about on this podcast. I would have loved to interview Solly Zuckerman himself, I'm sure, but I rather suspect that in his absence, talking to you about him is absolutely the next best thing. Well, the best thing the best thing is to read the books. I mean, the books are out of print, but you can still get them. But if anybody's interested in science advice, I mean, they're the best books I've ever read, not because they're like textbooks of how to do things, but they're basically stories. And, and you can learn from the stories as to, and you can take inferences from them that are just as relevant today as they were in the 1940s. Um, my only uh, uh, slight caveat is that if I had read them before I did the job rather than when I retired, <laughs> I might have been able to uh, deal with certain people more effectively. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, yes. Then I hope they become required reading for your successes. <laughs> then it only remains for me to say, Professor Mark Ferguson, thank you very much indeed for this conversation. No problem. Thank you very much indeed. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it. 